Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus receives an invitation to have dinner with a Pharisee and encounters an unlikely visitor. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. You know, I hear Christians taking the statement I made earlier. We hear Jesus say, you know, you brood of vipers. I hear him applying it today to the politicians they don't like or to those in their society that, that are their neighbors that are unsafe. And it's like, man, that's an abuse of the scriptures. That's not who Jesus was talking to in the use of those words. And there was a reason he used those words on that specific group of people. I hope you understand what I'm saying, because I think it's so important. The approach matters, and, and, and the position people are in matters. And, and it needs to be tailored how we deal with people based on where they are and what their status is. And so for Jesus, yeah, he was angry with them. Yeah, he was frustrated with these guys because they should have known better. But with that said, do not think for a moment that Jesus didn't care about these wayward shepherds. He absolutely did. If he didn't care, he never would have engaged them at all. He just would have ignored them completely, but he chose not to do that, and and he most certainly would have never accepted any invitation to dinner like this. And yet he does. Even in his caustic remarks that he will make to these these self-appointed leaders, although there will be frustration and there will be anger in those comments, frustration and anger were not the driving force behind the things that Jesus said, even to them. He said the things he said because they needed to hear it, because they needed to hear it, and with the hope that some would be so shocked by it all that they'd come to their spiritual senses and stop doing the things that they were doing. And even though most did not, some most certainly did, right? Some most certainly did. We know that there were Pharisees other than Nicodemus, the scriptures tell us, who came to faith in Christ. Other spiritual leaders who came to faith in Christ. And so, you know, Jesus cared about these guys. So so whatever the motivation behind this invitation, it's noteworthy to me that Jesus accepts this invitation and and even placing himself, think about this, he's even potentially placing himself at risk by going. But but he couldn't do any less because, as he said in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, he came to seek and save the lost, which included the wayward and contentious Pharisees. It included them as well. And yet this scene is remarkable on several levels. You know, first of all, the interaction between Jesus and this Pharisee, it's going to prove to be dramatic for those who are privy to witnessing this whole thing take place. I mean, if you ever wanted to be someplace in biblical history, just kind of be a fly on the wall, for me, this would have been one of the places I'd want to be to see what really went down, because this is pretty dramatic stuff that's taking place here. And the things Jesus will say is very simple, and yet it's piercing in regard to the point that he's making. And I mean, keep in mind... I mean, keep in mind on top of all of this that regardless of any sincerity on, on, on this Pharisee's motives for, for bringing Jesus there, sincerity, which is doubtful at best, th- these men are clearly not friends. <laughs> you know, Simon and Jesus are clearly not friends, and there's nothing in this passage to indicate that Simon is in any way a supporter of Jesus. 
much less a believer in him and in the things that he's teaching. And that alone makes this dinner a rather unique and intriguing filled event. The, the stuff, as one person said, good movies are made of, right? This is good fare for movies. The second interesting thing in this is all of this makes it remarkable that Jesus accepted this invitation. It makes it remarkable that he accepted it. But as I just mentioned, Jesus was not averse to taking risk when the purpose for the risk was necessary. I mean, there's risk in this, right? He could go and he could be be set up by these guys. Now, granted, Jesus is the son of God. I mean, he knows the men's hearts. He knows the motives. And yet at the same time, there's still risk that they'll twist his words. And we know that, that men will do that to him. But yet Jesus still goes because the risk was necessary. And I would argue because the Spirit was leading him to go. Even though Spirit's not mentioned here, we know that Jesus depended upon the Spirit for the things that he's doing. And so he's been led here. You know, I, I think that that's something that we should learn in our own lives, in our service for the Lord. We're not called to throw care to the wind, right? I know that there are Christians who almost put you down if you're not willing to take a risk on some things. Look, I, I'm not averse to risk, but I also understand that I'm not supposed to just throw care to the wind and just haplessly go into things. But we also aren't called to cloister ourselves away from everything that involves risk spiritually, you know, the, these same two essential ingredients that influence Jesus' decision should influence our decisions as well. Is the risk justified? Is it justified? Does it serve the greater purpose of the Lord? Does it serve, does it serve the Lord's greater purpose to have us take that particular risk, whatever it may be, you know? I, I've walked into places and, and shared Jesus with people in situations that could have been detrimental to my career in the military. And yet, I did, just didn't run around and do that every opportunity I had. I did it as, as I felt that the risk was justified to take at that moment. But I also think the second factor that plays in, because it's tied together, is the Spirit leading you to take that risk? Is the Holy Spirit leading you to take that risk. You know, the Spirit's leading was an essential part of Jesus's life and ministry. And, and we constantly find throughout the scriptures reference to Jesus being led by the Spirit, even in his temptation after the baptism. What does it say? And the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he was tempted. Jesus was dependent upon the Spirit, even though he was God in the flesh. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus had willingly chosen to set aside his divine capacities and to rely upon the Spirit's leading and power as he walked among men on this earth. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus ceased being God. Not at all. But it does mean that he willingly chose to, to, to set aside his divine power, to set aside those divine attributes, to relate to us, and to give us a demonstration of the powerful kind of life that we can live as we yield to the Spirit's power and leading in our lives as well. And as such, when we think about that, we have to learn to be attentive to the Spirit's leading. We need to know where he's leading, and then we need to be willing to respond and to obediently follow where he's leading us, even when he leads us into things that might contain risk. But when risk is involved, his leading is essential, you see? His leading's essential then, because far too many Christians have rushed foolishly into things in their service for the Lord, right? only to experience catastrophic results because their flesh and not the Spirit led them into that. 
you know, sometimes, and I'm very cautious when I say things, you know, I, I feel led to do this. I always stop myself when I say that and I say, why do I feel led? Am I, is my flesh leading me or is the spirit leading me? If the spirit's leading me, how do I know it's the spirit leading me? You know, it's amazing how the spirit will confirm things to me through my study of the Bible, through the study of the word, bring a passage to mind, lining up the events, things will occur that'll be there. And, and yeah, lots of times what I find in those situations is my flesh doesn't even want to go there. It's too scary. It's too risky. But the Spirit's clearly leading, and I've learned to obey, as we all should. You know, I'll be honest with you, this work, as funny as it is to say that, when I sit and look out on just a few faces right now, you know, in the season that we're in, but don't let this fool you. You know, this is the work of the Lord, and it still is, and it'll still be here after this this whole pandemic thing is going on. You know, somebody asked me earlier, they say, what do you think we're going to look like on the back end? I'm, my answer is, I have no idea. I just know this. The Lord called us. He put us into place, and I have confidence that he's going to pull us all back together and do what he's going to do on the back end of this. I have moments where I wonder about that because I'm a human being, too. But at the same time, I do know that. But I would tell you that this work exists because the the Lord, the Spirit, just led to take a risk. I mean, who am I? You know, I'm an old army guy. What am I? What do I know about theology? Not a whole lot. You know, I'm a student of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I've spent 40 years walking after Jesus, listening to other guys teach and who've invested in me. But at the same time, you know, I'm not a guy out of some top theological seminary to go out and plant a church and do all that. And yet the Lord just put on my heart, go do this, go do this, go do this. And he began to line things up, giving confirmation in the word. And we stepped out and I stepped out by faith and I took that risk. I mean, there's risk involved, right? You could show up for your first meeting and nobody's going to come. Then what do you say? Well, do you come back to the second one? You know, maybe, you know, but it was amazing. That first meeting, there were 10 people there. The, the janitor at the facility asked us, where'd these people all come from? My answer was, I have no clue. I have no clue. I'm just doing what the Lord called me to do. We went out and we witnessed Jesus. And, you know, we only told them about us if they asked us, but we shared Jesus with people. And then I said, you know, I just came here at seven o'clock and opened my Bible and 10 people walked in, you know, but risk, it, it, it's not about the flesh. It's about the spirit. And, and, and we have to know the difference. Jesus knew. And Jesus would take the risk when it, when, when it seemed right to him to do so from the circumstances and from the Spirit. But here, risk appears to mean nothing to Jesus because even though it's not stated, we can rightly assume that Jesus has been led to accept this invitation despite the risks involved because there was a purpose that was greater than the risk involved that needed to be accomplished at this meeting that's about to take place. We'll look on at verse 36. He says again, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And so having accepted this invitation, Jesus enters Simon's home and he sits down to eat. Now, it's important to understand some cultural things here because you're going to relate to this passage, unless you've really studied through this, you're going to relate to this with your American, Western kind of frame of mind, right? It's kind of like I invite somebody to come to my house for dinner. What are you going to do? You're going to pull out a chair, sit down at the dining room table, and we're going to eat together. A little bit different. First of all, in Jewish culture, meals were generally taken around a horseshoe table that was set very close to the ground. It's like they saw it off the leg, and it sits, it sits very, very low to the ground in a horseshoe shape. And participants would then be seated, generally three on a side, but their, their seated position would involve reclining. 
they, they wouldn't just sit, not even cross-legged, at the table. They would kind of recline on their left elbow, leaning out on this pillow that would be spread out around the table, and, and, and their head and arms would be toward the table, but then their feet would extend away from it. You kind of got the picture of what it would look like? Now you can kind of get a picture of what was happening at the Last Supper when it says that John was leaning against Jesus, right? That would be the normal flow because of the way they were sitting around that table. Now, now, as I said, the seating position of the table was also important at these formal dinners. We won't discuss the exact positioning of people at this one, but it will become important when we get later into the gospel and we talk about the Last Supper, because I believe that there was a clear order to the seating that was taking place there. So we'll come back to that. But second, it was also not uncommon for the poor to be invited to come into a setting like this especially a meal that would involve a guest like Jesus. And, and the poor were permitted then to come in, not only to observe the event, but, but to receive scraps of food from the table that might be left over. And that custom is what sets the stage for what happens next. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, if you have ever read this account and wondered, what's this woman doing? Where'd she come from? Why is she at the dinner? Now you know. Now you know. Simon was permitting and following a common custom of the day at dinners like this that would, where he would have opened the doors to the poor to come in. And she shows up. She shows up. Now, of course, you can't get away from the question that you need to think about here is, you know, was Simon simply honoring a custom that he routinely followed? Was this something he always did, or was there an ulterior motive to what he was doing? Could it possibly be that this Pharisee had opened his doors to the dinner like this, not because he routinely did this, even though it was custom, but maybe he didn't always do this. I mean, just the the attitude he holds toward her as a sinner tells you that this wasn't something he liked doing. And, and, And at the same time, maybe really what was happening is he just wanted to do it so it could be eyewash. For this particular dinner. In other words, while, again, this passage gives us no clear answer to this question, it's highly likely that this was a staged event. Not that he had staged this woman, but he had opened the doors as a staged event that was designed to impress Jesus with just how generous and pious, you know, he really is. Look how he cares for the poor so that, you know, he kind of gives that persona to Jesus. And that was certainly I don't think it's a stretch to say that certainly would fit the profile of the Pharisees in general, because that's the kind of stuff they did. They did all kinds of stuff to draw attention to their self-righteousness, to their piety, so everybody would see. And Jesus had a lot to say about that kind of stuff, didn't he? I mean, just think about in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where Jesus rebukes. He says this to the crowds, clearly with the Pharisees standing right nearby listening, but he's not looking at them. He's looking at the crowds. And he says in Matthew 6 and verse 1, Take heed 
that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Doesn't that fit this whole passage potentially with what may be happening? Could be. You know, in this situation, again, we don't know for certain that this Pharisee was following the custom in order to impress Jesus or not, but but the custom itself had become hypocritical because with many people it became a way of self-justifying themselves spiritually in their own eyes and in the eyes of others. Look at how I care for the poor. Look at how, how, how I, I have a heart for those in need. Look at how much I'm doing for them. I even open my doors so they can come in as the custom is and be fed, you see? Great. Great. Glad you're doing that, Mr. Pharisee. Glad you're doing that, Mr. Believer, that you're caring for the poor. Glad you're doing that if you sincerely care about them. If you sincerely care about them. But is that really your motive? Is it really your motive? You know, there are a lot of things that we can fall into the trap of as Christians, even today, you know, that many of us think can be about really caring about, you know, righteous things and about people and and doing things. But in our hearts, even though some of the things we can be doing might seem right, it can be wrong if our motive's wrong. You know, for instance, you can donate clothes to a shelter. You know, you guys can think of a list of these. I'll just give you a few. You can donate clothes to a shelter, but what clothes did you choose to donate? And how did you decide that? You know, did you simply go through the stuff you didn't want anymore? Did you go through things you didn't particularly like? Did you go through the things that were really worn out? Did you even think about what you were giving and why you were doing it? You know, we periodically, and maybe this year would be a great year to do it when things begin to open up again. But, you know, we've done those free yard sales out here, which have ministered to people. We did those when we were in Greencastle. It was great there because we were right on the main street. And we get crowds of people are coming. It was always free. We always do things for free here. We've always made a point of doing that. But in the process of doing that, I would tell folks, look, you know, we'll give away whatever you bring in. It isn't like we got a stockpile in the shed. So whatever you bring in, we'll give out. But do us a favor. Don't just bring us your toilet plungers. You know, don't just bring the toilet plungers. Bring something that costs you something, you know, that, that you're willing to part with because of why you want to do that, that you want to bless somebody. Let's bless somebody. Now, it is amazing. We've had some nice stuff out there and some toilet plungers, and people grab the toilet plungers. Go figure. You know, but it's not what's out there. It's why it's out there. You follow what I'm saying? You know, it's the same thing, too. You can donate money to support missionaries. That's great. That's a good work. Missionaries need to be supported. But the question you should be asking yourself is, why am I doing it? And how am I doing it? You know, what's really driving me towards this? Is it really more about me than it is about them in my doing that? Do you really care about them? Here's a good one. If you're giving to missionaries, are you praying for those missionaries? Are you praying for them at the same time? Or are you just sticking money in an envelope and sending it off? You know, are you praying for them? Uh, do, do you prayerfully consider what they need? Or, or did you just check the block with your donation to them? And, and what about sending money that relieves you of your own heart 
in your service to the Lord, right? Some people almost give just because it relieves them some in their mind of their own responsibility and what the Lord may be calling them to do in some cases. And here's the real question. When you do that, what does sending that support do in your own heart? Do you derive from it a sense of spiritual self-satisfaction? Ooh, watch out for that. That, that sense of, oh, I've just done a good thing. Look at what, it, you know what I'm saying? It can be more subtle than that, but it can sometimes be exactly that in our hearts. Oh, I just, I did a good thing by doing that. I can tell you right now, the motive's wrong, if that's the case. It should never be about spiritual self-satisfaction. None of the services we give, none of the things that we do should be about our spiritual self-satisfaction. We're not doing this for our spiritual self-satisfaction. What we do, we do as unworthy servants for our Lord, you see. You can give to your church, but what you're giving really about, is it about honoring the Lord and the work he's doing through through the local church to which you belong, or is it about something else that he that has to do more with you than with him? Is your giving birth in prayer? You know, years ago, and I won't go far into this today, but, you know, I've said this before, but years ago, I had a real sense of conviction as I looked at the scriptures that, you know, the concept of the, the tithe was an Old Testament concept. The New Testament's about free will offerings, you know, and as, as I began to share that over a series of a couple of weeks, I think I was in Corinthians at the time. If any guys ever want to hear it, you know, we can pull it up for you and get it for you. But, you know, I just went through it and logically went through. And then at the end, I was talking about what the right attitude in giving is, why we give and why we do these things. But, you know, as I was going through this and I was thinking about these things, you know, one of the things I had a number of people say is, well, boy, we're going to be in a lot of trouble now. You know, how are we going to pay the bills? And I'm like, well, we've never depended on the people for paying the bills. We've always looked to the Lord for doing that. So we'll just look to the Lord to do that. But the challenge I gave to people was you need to now, this puts an onus on you because you got to pray about what you're doing. You have to pray about it. You know, I remember I, it's one of the reasons I hate, to be honest with you, I hate passing the plates in churches. I just do. And part of the reason I dislike it is because I found myself just in a habit of reaching in my pocket and throwing whatever I had in my pocket and throwing it in the plate as it went by. There was no thought. There was no prayer. There was no consideration. There was nothing. And that's not a push to say it ought to be a bigger amount. It's not necessarily that. It's about what the Lord tells you to do. But are you seeking the Lord or are you just checking a block? Are you just checking a block? You know, and I think that's the heart of this thing. The Pharisees were all about block checking. Everything they did was about checking blocks, the, the keeping of rituals, the reason they kept the rituals, and then the self-satisfaction that they got from it, and then the portrayal that they gave to others. I hope this is making sense to you guys this morning, because I think this is really important. And, and as we look at this guy, again, we don't know his motivation, but based on the pattern of the Pharisees in general and the interaction that's going to develop at this dinner, it's reasonably safe to assume that his motivations are not as pure as might, as he might have been trying to convince Jesus by opening his doors for the poor to come in. Now, with that said, we can't account for Simon's motivations, can we? But whose motivations can we account for? Our own, right? We're accountable. And here's the bottom line. Jesus is not impressed with false piety. He's just not impressed with it at all. But back to this account. Who is this woman? We don't know. 
because it doesn't tell us. Now, now some have speculated that it was Mary Magdalene because she was a sinner, right? Delivered of demons and, and, and lots of connections there. And, and I know a lot of movies that are made about Jesus depict her as being the one doing this, but we have no evidence of this at all. She's unnamed. And usually when I find that in the scriptures, I like to leave it there. There's a reason because she's a face of a lot of different people. You see, she's just a face in the crowd that's being highlighted for this specific point that Jesus is trying to make. Now, we do have a similar account to this account given to us in John chapter 12 and verse 3, where a woman named Mary, but that's Mary of Bethany, anoints Jesus' feet with oil, but it's clearly a different setting than this account. That account takes place in Bethany, which is very close to Jerusalem. Here, we're still down in the Galilee region, which is further away, you know, but, but here at, at Bethany involved Lazarus, the same Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead, and it involved Martha, who, who was helping to serve the dinner, and she's present along with the disciples, including Judas Iscariot. And none of the disciples or Judas are mentioned in this account whatsoever. And, and on top of that, that account takes place closer to the end of Jesus' ministry. This one's clearly in the opening year of his ministry. This is occurring early on in his ministry. So it's clearly a similar incident with a lot of parallels, but at the same time, it's a different incident. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.